Kings 19, beginning in verse 1. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if, we, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid. And he rose, and he ran for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones in a jar of water and he ate and drank and lay down again and the angel of the lord came a second time and touched him and said arise and eat for the journey is too great for you and he rose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to horeb the mount of god let's pray O lord you are the god who takes dry bones and by your breath you bring life into them So, Lord, would you take our discouraged and weary bones and would you revive us again? Would you take our sorrow and despair and bring joy and hope in you? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. If you remember the context here in 1 Kings 19, we have just before this seen Elijah go and by God's command set up a challenge with the prophets of Baal. They're going to see whose sacrifice will be lit by their God. They set up the stones, they set up the wood, they put the sacrifice on top, and yet they get no fire. And though the 450 prophets of Baal cry all day, even cut themselves, nothing happens. Yet when Elijah prays, God sends fire that consumes not just the sacrifice, but even the stones on the altar. Yet right after this, when the queen Jezebel says, I will take your life, Elijah flees. Elijah, who had just seen God's miraculous provision. Elijah, who had been sustained in the wilderness before this. Elijah, who had been sustained in a foreign country, who had seen God protect him, now runs. And not only does he run, he wants to die. He wants God to take his life. And Elijah is not alone in these feelings of despair and discouragement. Here, these various psalmists. Psalm 6, we read earlier, verse 6, I am weary with moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. Psalm 13, 1, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why... Have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Psalm 42, 3-5. My tears have been my food day and night. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Psalm 77, 2-4, My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. 
Psalm 88, my soul is full of trouble, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more. For they are cut off from your hand. You've put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. You have caused my beloved and my friends to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Now, I wonder if we had ripped those words out of the psalm and put them in a friend of yours who is a Christian and they said those words to you, what would you say? Would you be subtly thinking, are you a Christian? I mean, the fruit of the Spirit is joy. You've been forsaken by God You want your life to end? Can you even know God and say such things? Shouldn't we consider it all joy when we encounter various trials? Shouldn't we rejoice always? Well, while there's much that could be said, we need to realize this morning, and we'll see that, yes, you can be a believer and say those things. And as we encounter this darkness, we need to remember four broad things. We're actually not going to be able to cover all four this morning. We're just going to look at the first two, and then next week we'll finish it up. But first, we need to see that there is a blessedness to mourning. Then we need to see that we need to care for our bodies. And then next week we'll finish by looking that we need to renew our mind, and we need to revive our spirit. But first, this morning, we need to see that there is a blessedness to mourning as a society We no longer know how to weep. We are uncomfortable with sadness. I've done probably 15 funerals, and even at almost every single funeral, when someone begins to cry as they speak, they say, I'm sorry, as though they need to apologize for being sad at the death of a loved one. At almost every funeral, as I talk to the family beforehand, invariably, one or more will say to me, well, I'm trying to be strong for the family. As though that means I can't break down and cry. I got to be the one who is strong. And there's an unstated pressure, I think, amongst Christians that, yes, you can cry, but you can't be sad too long. I mean, after a year, shouldn't you be over that? And yet some sadness lasts for a long time. Ecclesiastes 3, 4 says there's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Perhaps in our society... The strength your family needs to see is you crying. Perhaps the weak ones are those who are unable to cry in public. Tears, grief, and mourning, they weren't the way God intended this world to be because before sin entered the world, there was no sorrow. There was no suffering. There was nothing to be sad over. There was no reason to mourn. There was no sickness. There was no broken relationships. There was no natural disasters, as we call them, no death. Yet now the curse of sin is here and God gives us tears to respond to this broken world. Tears even as a way to heal. Your tears are somewhat like taking care of the wound when you fall in the dirt. It hurts to get the soap and water and rub it, to get the peroxide and pour it on top. And yet if you don't get down into the depths of the wound, it'll only get worse. And so sometimes we need to go into the depths of our sorrow and not try, no, no, that's going to hurt. We need to go into it and mourn. 
Because we can know that the morning does not have the last word. The Apostle John tells of the great day when Jesus will return and then God will be with us again. Revelation 21, 3-4 declares, God will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. So we now as believers live in this in-between time between God's good creation and God's return and the glorification of all things. And due to this, there are times to mourn because sin has created such destruction and death. We have relationships that are broken. We see loved ones make tragically bad decisions. We see evil ideas, evil leaders holding people captive. We see poverty. We see sickness that ravage people's lives. And everyone will die. And in light of all this, it is only right for God's people to cry, to mourn. Yes, the fruit of the Spirit is joy. And while there can be joy in the fact that God works through these trials, we don't consider the trial a joy. We consider what it produces. We don't rejoice in suffering in itself. We rejoice in what suffering produces in us. Thus, Jesus wept at the death of his friend Lazarus. He wept at the state of Israel, and he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was because of the fact that he was going to live in this sin-cursed world, and that he was going to take the curse of sin, that the prophet described him as despised by men and rejected, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Thus Jesus said in Luke 6.25, Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. While Jesus declares this, our Western culture is the exact opposite. We always want to have a good time. What do we ask our children when we pick them up? Did you have a good time? As though that's the sum total of what everything should be. When you go to church, go to Sunday school. Well, did you have a good time this morning? Well, life's not always about having a good time. You know, formerly we realized some parts of life should be serious, but now everything has to be entertaining. Work needs to be casual. School has to have silly, wacky days. Church needs to be entertaining. And even if you go on planes and they are giving things that you should do in case of malfunctioning in the plane, they tell it with jokes because we got to laugh. This is funny. We might die. <laughs> no, you should know what's going to happen. This is serious. We don't have to laugh. All the time. Now the point is that we need to swing the pendulum to the other side and start wearing black and being somber and serious all the time and the only thing we experience is sorrow. Well, that's not true either. But as a society, sadly, even sometimes in the church, we've lost the need to mourn. We've acted as though maybe it's a little ungodly if you mourn too long or too deep. And yet, how can Jesus say that woe to you if you are happy? Well, I believe he's saying, look, you're blinded to several things if you aren't mourning at all. You're blinded to your own sin if there's not mourning in your life. James 4, 8 through 10 says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Yes, there is great joy. There's 
overwhelming peace that comes with knowing that we're completely forgiven by Christ. And yet, it should burden us the delight we still find in the sins that sent him to the cross. The times we not only delight in them, but when we do them. And that should lead us to grieve. Like Jesus, we should grieve when we look at our nation. As we should say, oh America, America. And we haven't mentioned all the other things we should be grieving over. People dying, leaving children behind. All the other things we've mentioned earlier. In other words, Jesus is saying, you are blind to what life is about if all you're doing in life is laughing and having a good time. If that is true, then Jesus is warning, woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. And on the flip side, Jesus says in Matthew 5, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. In other words, yes, there is deep, there is painful, there is deep sorrow. Yet that does not the final word. You shall be. Future, it will happen. You will be comforted. Thus, to answer our questions from the beginning, can a Christian say these things? Resoundingly, yes. In fact, it should concern us if a Christian never says these things. If a Christian goes through life and is always happy all the day, you should say, don't you see all the sorrow in this world? Yes, we grieve, but as Paul says, not without hope. So we live in this mixed time. But what should we do when there seems to be no hope, when all the light seems to have been squelched and the darkness overwhelms us, when the sadness and grief are not temporary or for a season, but they are enduring and they last more than that, they become to become debilitating. You have overwhelming despair. You have very little energy. Nothing brings you joy. And perhaps even like Elijah, you're crying out, God, would you just take my life? And maybe you've considered it yourself. What should we think of this? How should we handle it? Well, those are the three other things we need to look at. We need to first look at caring for our body. And then next week and the week after, sorry, this next week, looking at renewing our mind and reviving our spirit. And basically what I'm saying is we need to remember how God made us. And the way God made us is how we need to be restored. God made us with bodies, minds, and spirits. So let's consider the first one, caring for the body. And we need to remember what God knows about us. It says in Psalm 103, God knows our frame. He remembers that we are but dust. Now, I'm sure that's not a birthday card you get. Hey, I'm so proud of your grandson. You're nothing but dust. That's not something that makes us go cheering about. I got better dust compiled together than you got dust compiled together. But that's what we are. Without the breath of God upon us, we are dust. And to dust we shall return. And so we have to recognize that. And yet, how does God sustain this dust? It's not some mystical way. He gives us food. He gives us exercise. He gives us sleep. And yet, sadly, sometimes Christians act as though, well, if I serve the Lord, I don't really need to worry about those things. Often, joke, you can really tell if a Christian believes in miracles. Because you can have a, let's say, men's breakfast, and you set before them apple fritters and donuts, and then you pray, God, would you bless this food to the nourishment of our body? Well, no apple fritter is going to nourish your body. I'm sorry to let you know. God moves in miraculous ways, but that would be quite a miracle. Because God normally works through normal means. 
He set up an orderly universe. And so we need to act in line with that. You may have heard of Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a well-known pastor in England in the 1900s. But before he was a pastor, he was a doctor. And he has a great book called Spiritual Depression. And in it, in one of the sermons, he says, Does anyone hold the view that as long as you're a Christian, it does not matter the condition of your body? Well, you will soon be disillusioned if you believe that. Physical conditions play a part of depression. There are certain physical ailments which tend to promote depression. Speaking generally, you can put tiredness, overstrain, in any form of illness. You cannot oscillate the spiritual from the physical, for we are body, mind, and spirit. The greatest and the best Christians, when they are physically weak, are more prone to an attack of spiritual depression than at any other time. And so when you are having seasons of sorrow, and it doesn't seem to go away, what should you do? You should talk to godly friends. You should pray. You should be in the Word. And I would say you should go to your doctor. There might be some chemical imbalance. It might be that your thyroid isn't working as it should, and you should get blood work done and see if anything's wrong. And it might not be that, but you should consider those things. I know of a woman who had a child, several other children, and because of several factors had to immediately cut off breastfeeding at eight weeks. She was also tired because of many children. And she was unable to get the sleep that she needed, and her body was recovering from giving birth. And to all those factors, she went into a deep and dark depression. Now, did she need to pray? Did she need to go to church? Did she need to do all those things? Yes. But she also needed to get her hormones back the way they needed to get. She also needed to get sleep. She also needed other things. Our physical bodies are not somehow detached from our spiritual bodies. As though all I need to do to take care of this is pray. And so my point in all this is not to say all medicine is good for fixing this or all medicine is bad. We'll actually talk about that more next week. Rather, my point is to suggest that perhaps a large part of our being cast down at times is tied to your physical body. And so along with that, we need to remember the ABZs, an active lifestyle, a balanced diet, and your Zs, your sleep. First, an active lifestyle. Well, I didn't look from Genesis to Revelation, but pretty sure there's no verse that says you should go to a gym. Yet Paul does say, 1 Timothy 4.8, that bodily training is of some value. As well, the fourth commandment, though it's a command to rest, there's implicit into it, six days you shall work. You should be active. Now, most of us do not have physically demanding jobs where we're using our bodies. Rather, we're seated and we're using our minds. And so we need to choose some active hobbies. Add to this that the average American spends three hours a day watching television, and you can see why this is a concern. You don't have to be a health expert to need to realize our nation needs to change some habits. And studies have shown if you get consistent exercise, 30 minutes a day, three or four times a week, it will decrease symptoms of depression and give a boost in your mood and energy. Now, it doesn't matter exactly what you do as long as you get your heart rate up. So you could take the kids to the park. I know for some, well, we don't have time. We'll go play with the kids. Use your lunch break for a walk. Ride a bike. Meet someone at the gym. Mow the yard. Have a garden. Play a sport. Clean the church. You can do any of those things and get your heart rate up. Now, there's more to being active than just exercising. It's realizing that God made us to be fruitful and multiply. To fill the earth and subdue it. 
In other words, God made you with the purpose of being productive. And when you're not being productive, you will be led to discouragement. I remember Ty sharing once that when you get up and you have a job before you like painting a room, throughout the day you hate it the whole time. What's more fun throughout the day is to sit there and play video games. But at the end of the day, if you painted the room, you sit back and you go, what a day. And you look at what you've done. At the end of the day, you play video games, you sit back and you go, I just played video games all day. And your body feels, ugh. Because God made us to be productive. And when we do things with our bodies, when we're active, we grow in joy. And so many depressed people, they go deeper because they're not doing anything. And it drives them even further in. And there's no lack of things to do in this world. Visit the elderly. If they won't let you due to COVID, then FaceTime them. Call them. Write them. Help those in need with mowing their yards, cleaning their house, buying groceries. If you can't think of things to do, I can tell you lots of them. Isaiah 58, Israel is calling out to the Lord saying, God, why aren't you hearing our fasting? Why aren't you hearing our prayers? And God replies to them and he says, I don't hear you because when you fast, you fast for your own pleasure. And then verses 6 through 8 says, Is this not the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness? To undo the straps of the yoke? To let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked to cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh, then shall your light break forth from the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Now I know that for some, I'm hitting the very thing that is leading to your depression. And that is, well, I would love to be active, but my body won't let me. I'm homebound. How is this helping me when the very thing I want to do, I can't do? And if that is your situation, then don't underestimate the work of prayer. The work and joy of calling someone. Maybe another person who is homebound. Because what I found is all the homebound feel homebound by themselves. Well, you can call the other homebound people and you can talk to them. And you can send them cards and you can send them the ways you've been praying for them. As well, this is one of those areas where you have to cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, come quickly. I am living in a broken world and I feel broken. And it's not the way it should be. And so, Lord, I long for you to come and restore me in this world to the way it should be. But that's A, active lifestyle. We need to consider B, a balanced diet. Now, I'm not a nutritionist. And you should talk to nutritionists if you're having diet issues. But quite clearly, clearly, not clearly, but it is kind of queer at times. Americans have an unbalanced and unhealthy diet. We eat a large number of processed foods, high in sugars and fat, and we consume few fresh vegetables and fruit. I could dive into so many aspects, but let's just pick an easy and glaring one, sugar. American Heart Association says an adult male should only have 36 grams of added sugar to their diet, an adult woman 25 of added sugar per diet. And yet the average American consumes 77 grams. So that's twice as much for men and three times as much for women. Average. So if you add that up over a year, the average adult is eating 60 extra pounds of sugar. That's 12 bags of 5 pounds of sugar Stack them up, that's what you're eating extra if you're eating an average American diet. 
the average American child eats 81 grams per day, more than adults. That's 65 pounds that children are eating every year. And the thing that is unknown in all this is this is normally not coming from cookies and ice cream. It's coming from drinks. And get a little mathematical here. Every four grams of sugar is one teaspoon. So, got your little teaspoon, you pour stuff in. Every four of those, sorry, every four grams of sugar is one of those. If you go buy one of those nine and a half ounce Starbucks bottled Frappuccino, that has 32 grams of sugar. So that's getting out eight teaspoons of sugar and dumping them in a drink. If you drink one Coke, that's 36 grams of sugar. That's your whole sugar allotment for the day. If you have a Capri Sun, oh, I'm going to give my kids something healthy. Well, that has 18 grams of sugar. Chocolate milk, 29 grams. Now, if your child got a bowl of oatmeal and dumped four and a half teaspoons of sugar on it, I think you'd say, whoa, 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 what are you doing? That's way too much sugar. Hey, go have a Capri Sun instead. Well, you're doing the same thing. Now, let me end with this one. If you get a small sonic slush, that's 48 grams of sugar. And a root 44 is 145 grams of sugar. So four days worth of sugar in one drink. Now let me be clear, sugar is not the problem. Proverbs 24, 13, My son, eat honey, for it is good. And the drippings of the honeycomb are sweet to your taste. Sugar is a good thing. Proverbs 25, 16, and 27, though, says, If you've found honey, only eat enough for you, lest you have your fill of it and vomit it. It is not good to eat too much honey. You know, we're a society that works at our play and plays at our work. We've made our staples of diet the treats, and we've made the treats the staples. Now, in this, I am not saying a Coke is sinful. I'm not saying you shouldn't get a sonic slush. Those are wonderful things to have as a treat. What I'm saying is we need to consider how our body affects our spiritual state. Now let's just consider Halloween. We all see it every year. What happens? Sugar rush, maniacal craze. You go, whoa, and then crash and burn. Well, when we're having sugary drinks at breakfast, in the mid-morning, at lunch, on the way home, and at dinner, why are we then surprised that we go, ugh, I don't feel like doing anything? Well, no amount of prayer is going to overcome that overload of sugar you gave your body. You need to recognize there are physical parts of your body. And could it be that often, maybe it's not a spiritual issue, it's that we're not taking care of our bodies, and we've only talked about what we're drinking. We could go into what we eat, and when we eat, and how we eat. And all this, though, is wanting to remind us that God made you body, spirit, mind. Let's take care of all of our bodies. And so, in this... Rather than praying, God, would you bless this donut? Maybe, God, would you bless this healthy food that I'm eating at the right time? So we've talked about A, active lifestyle, and B, balanced diet, and now Z's getting sleep. Psalm 127, 1-2 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Your vain is something that is empty. It's pointless. It's futile. That's why we're told, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Don't use God's name when you don't have any point to it, when you're just using God's name as anything. 
Now here it says, unless the Lord builds the house. Now this probably has a double meaning because this was either written by Solomon or to Solomon. So this could be the physical house. Unless God's helping you build your physical house, you're not going to get it. There's sinkholes. There's bad weather. There's damaged construction materials. There's job site accidents. There's lack of financial resources. And on and on, things that cause buildings not to be built. And yet this is also to Solomon who's going to build the house of the Lord, the temple. Solomon, unless you're having me build the temple, you're not going to build it. You know, David wanted to build the house of the Lord, but he said, no, your son shall do it. You know, we can't even do something for God unless he allows it. We may want thousands of people to be saved. We may just want our children to be saved. But whether it's thousands or one, it is up to the Lord. So we cry for him to come. Now the point is not that it's empty or vain or pointless to attempt to build anything for God and that God doesn't desire us to do that. He's not saying, well, get rid of the watchmen. You don't need cameras or satellites. God will keep you safe. Rather, he's saying, the problem is when you're doing that with anxious toil. You know, the problem is when we're getting up early and going to late consistently, thinking that by working myself ragged, by being anxious, by doing all this, I can achieve my dreams. I can do this. You know, that's, again, very counter to our culture. Our culture says you can do anything you want. Anything you set your mind upon, you can achieve. Well, yes, we have in our country, by hard work and perseverance, been able to achieve many dreams. However, in the Olympics, you're only shown the stories of the people who made it. They don't show you the 20 people who went to the American trials and didn't make it, because they probably tried just as hard. And there are many children before that who wanted to make the Olympic trials, and they didn't make that. Unless the Lord builds it, you labor in vain. Psalm 127 is rebuking the anxious toil, not just toil. So yes, there are times to get up early. There are times to stay up late working. Paul commends people for working hard for the Lord, and there are times we make sacrifices for God, and he is pleased in that. The point is not passivity, but rather to realize that the activities we do will only be blessed if God is a part of them. And then once we grasp that, not just intellectually, but with our hearts, then what does Psalm 127 say? For God gives to his beloved sleep. Your restless nights often come as we try to work through all that happened or all that will happen the next day. Yet if we can realize that, yes, I should study, I should plan, I should work hard, but then ultimately trust God with the results, then it can free us of so much anxious sleep and restlessness. Not only does God provide sleep, but we need it. Even Jesus needed sleep. Sleep so much that when he was in the midst of a storm, he slept soundly. He had taken to heart that the Lord, if he is controlling all, if he is in control of the sea, then I don't have to be anxious. I can sleep in the midst of of the storm. And so this is not just a call to sleep, it's a call to trust God. And the trust of God is often manifested by your ability to sleep. Now that's normally the case because again, we're body, mind, and spirit. You might not be able to sleep because 
you have too much sugar. You might not be able to sleep because you just watch something on your phone. You might not be able to sleep because you have some kind of sleeping disorder. And yet we have to realize our need for sleep. And that when we don't get it, we are hurting ourselves and then leading ourselves to further discouragement and being cast down. And as with our eating habits and as with our activity, Americans fall woefully short. Children ages 6 to 13 should get on average 10 hours of sleep. People 14 to 17 on average should get 9 hours of sleep. 18 to 64 should average 8 hours and 65 and above 7 and a half hours. And so uh, may I add to parents, give your children a bedtime. They won't like it, but they don't really like when you make them eat vegetables and they don't like when you say you need to go to school, but they need it. And you are the one who God has put in charge to care for them in every way. And yet many people say, oh, I can get out. I can get by without sleep. I don't need it. And yet our body needs it. And for some reason, I've never understood why. Teenagers like to boast of how little they can sleep. Oh, I stayed up till 3 a.m. last night. Oh, that's nothing. I stay up till 4 every night. I don't need any sleep. That's like me going around saying, you know what? Sometimes I go weeks without eating food. Isn't that cool? Well, no, you're a moron. Go eat some food. (laughs) It's not cool to not sleep. Your body needs it, and you're not cooler than the next guy for how late you can stay up. And if you talk to their parents, they're normally not up that late anyway. Somehow it's some boasting game of lack of sleep. I don't get it. But nonetheless, you need sleep, and God wants you to get it. And you will probably crash and burn the next day and be grumpy. And Well, I guess I'm grumpy because I don't trust the Lord. No, you're grumpy because you didn't get enough sleep last night. So pray and go to bed and get a good night's rest and get a consistent habit so you can honor the Lord and serve Him joyfully. And so if you trust what God's Word has to say about you, then you know He made you body, mind, and soul. And if you fail to care for any of those, you're going to harm yourself and you're not going to be loving to those around you. And so next week we're going to focus on those latter two, renewing the mind, reviving your spirit. But let's end by considering briefly how when our mind is changed, our spirit is revived, that's when we can come from despair into delight. Consider Elijah, what we read earlier. When he read, ran for his life, when he ran from his calling, when he asked God to end his life, what did he say? He said, I've been exceedingly jealous. This is verse 14 of chapter 19. I've been exceedingly jealous for Yahweh, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, and your altar they tore down and killed your prophets with a sword, and I am left, I alone. And they seek my life to take it. You know, Elijah was not living out of a Psalm 127 mentality, but rather one in which he and his plans would bring change. You can almost hear Elijah, unless I build God's house, those who build it will labor in vain. Unless I watch over the spiritual state of the nation, there's no hope. I must rise up early and stay up late, getting little rest, but praying and fighting Jezebel. I, 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 I alone must do this. And when he looked to himself and didn't trust God, He grew in despair. You know, Elijah confuses his plans with God acting. And we too may be discouraged because all of our plans are messing up. I can't see anything happening. I work and work and the pile just gets bigger. Well, perhaps you've taken on more than God wants you to do. And perhaps you need to unload some things off your plate. Perhaps you look at everything and you go, I can't. I need to do all these things. Then work hard. 
ask others for help and then pray and go, God, you don't give me more than I am called to do. And so I'm going to trust you with everything I've done and go to sleep and know that you will work in and through my broken efforts. And then what do we do? We lift our eyes. Unlike you and me who need slumber and sleep, who need food and rest, who are dependent on others, dependent on God, we lift up our eyes to the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He's the one from whom our help comes. He will not let you be moved, for he who keeps you will not slumber. He never slumbers or sleeps. He's the only independent one who needs nothing else. So we lift our gaze and we find our hope in Him. Then as we do that, we can say as David did in Psalm 40, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. So may we. Let's pray. O Lord, thank you for giving us these bodies. Broken as they may be, they are a gift from you, and may we be good stewards of them. Lord, may we find joy in you. Lord, I know in myself and many in this room we are prone to discouragement. We are prone to despair. Would you bring us hope? Would you give us the wisdom and the faithfulness to care for ourselves, be good stewards of the body you've given us so that we might love you and love those around us as you've called us to do. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.